Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Monday, May 16th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, plants have successfully been grown in moon dust for the first time. Plus, McDonald's is officially closing all of their restaurants in Russia. Why that is such a big deal. A new site that will tell you how much your current home or one you're looking to buy is at risk of wildfires and underwear that can protect you from STIs. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. We may not have been to the moon for 50 years, but even today, new experiments are being conducted on materials collected and brought back from the Apollo missions. If anything, the experiments are ramping up as we prepare to make our return to the moon and beyond very soon. Now, as I've mentioned numerous times, growing plants in space is not just great research for how various species of plants can survive in extreme conditions and thereby inform some ways that we might help them survive our changing climate, but will also prove to be crucial for longer missions in space. With limited payload, the more we can create en route or at the destination, and therefore the less that has to be packed, the better. But even if a crew plans on growing a decent proportion of the food they'll be eating, you still have to pack the supplies for growing the food. And as any gardener can tell you, the weight of soil adds up very quickly. And the amount of soil required to grow plants always seems to be more than you would expect. Probably something engineers at NASA are better at estimating than I am, but nonetheless... Hydroponics, that is, growing plants without soil using water-based nutrient solutions, is a great alternative, and one that NASA has explored a lot. But for that, you still need a lot of water, and especially on these longer missions, water is also in short supply. At least for now, as we continue perfecting various experiments like turning astronauts' urine into potable water. A real thing. But anyways, given the many different challenges to growing plants and the great necessity of doing so, a team of researchers from the University of Florida recently conducted an experiment to determine if plants could be grown in moon dust, aka lunar regolith. Using samples returned from the Apollo era, the researchers planted thale crest seeds, a particularly well-studied flowering plant, and monitored their growth and health over several weeks. As a control for the lunar regolith samples, they also planted thalecrest seeds in a NASA-developed material called JSC-1A. JSC-1A, named for the Johnson Space Center, is a simulant of lunar regolith that was created in the early 2000s to enable studies and experiments without quickly running through our small supply of actual lunar regolith samples. Quoting Ars Technica, 
There are some significant differences between JSC-1A and lunar soil. These include some chemical differences, with lunar regolith containing higher amounts of titanium and some trace minerals than JSC-1A. Earth's oxidizing environment also creates some differences in the chemical state of some of the metals present, including that of iron, a key component of many enzymes, such as those involved in photosynthesis. And finally, there are some physical differences between the material and the soil. The rapid melting and cooling caused by micrometeorite impacts on the regolith creates small globs of glassy material. JSC-1A uses volcanic glasses to approximate this process, but there are still physical differences. End quote. All of these differences between the best simulant and the real thing, let alone between natural soil on Earth and its counterparts on other space bodies, is what makes the question of whether we could grow plants in the local soil on other bodies such an open-ended one. As ours points out, the native soil elsewhere has a different and complicated mix of minerals, organic compounds, and microbial life that plants that evolved on Earth may not be able to tolerate. And as Wired further explains of lunar regolith, Quote, the sand grains are dry, sharp, abrasive, and extremely fine. They have minerals and ions that earth plants have never encountered before, and they have no organics whatsoever, because no plants have ever grown and then died and decomposed on the moon. End quote. So for this experiment, the researchers monitored the Thale Crest seeds that they planted in both the lunar regolith and the JSC-1A simulant. All samples were given a nutrient solution that the team had finely tuned from prior experiments with JSC-1A. And for the first few days, all of the samples looked about the same. And the team was ecstatic that every single seed in the lunar regolith germinated. But about six days in, the moon seeds started struggling. Their growth slowed down, and they started showing signs of stress and ill health. Leaves became pigmented or shriveled up, and none of them grew as big as their JSC-1A counterparts. The team ran genetic tests on the plants and found that even the healthy-looking seedlings in the lunar regolith still showed signs of stress in their gene activity. This study tells us a few things. First, that growing plants in lunar regolith is possible. That is huge. As research lead Annalisa Paul put it, quote, We were watching the very first seeds ever in the history of humanity, in the history of the solar system, growing in lunar material. End quote. That can't be understated. However, much more needs to be done to help plants grow more strongly, especially if we're talking about bigger edible plants that need to flower and be pollinated, and some of those solutions may end up being things that negate the advantages of growing food in lunar regolith to begin with, like taking extra time or bringing along more supplies that equal more weight. But Paul and the team make one really cool point. If we do try planting things up on the moon during the Artemis mission, that will only make future plants up there grow even stronger, because they'll be improving the soil for future generations. Imagine a whole little farm up on the moon. How do I apply for that job? McDonald's has officially announced that it is pulling the plug on all of its restaurants in Russia. They'll be selling them to a local buyer, and the restaurants will not be allowed to use the McDonald's name, logo, branding, or menu. The company stated today that, quoting the Wall Street Journal, continued ownership of its businesses in Russia was no longer tenable nor consistent with its values, as well as posing practical and commercial challenges, end quote. Now, this comes after an announcement back in March that the megacorporation was temporary 
temporarily closing 847 of its restaurants in Russia. Many Western companies have paused operations in Russia, but McDonald's is one of, if not the biggest, to announce that they will be fully ceasing operations. And it feels like a particularly big deal given the reception McDonald's got when they first opened their first restaurants in Russia in 1990, a move that was like the Big Mac that launched a thousand think pieces. The most notable take at the time was from economist Thomas Friedman, whose so-dubbed Golden Arches Theory of Conflict Prevention held that no countries that both have McDonald's in them could ever go to war with each other because, due to globalization and their now integrated economies, the cost of going to war would be too great to bear on both of them. Now, McDonald's was, of course, here a sort of stand-in for globalization in general. It was never meant to be like an ironclad causal thing, more of a symbol and noted correlation. The theory has always been criticized for being overly simplistic and optimistic, and various conflicts since the mid-90s have shown how inaccurate it is, but the big discussion of this theory over the years certainly puts a different hue on today's news. You know, Even though the theory has never really held up, it does make McDonald's closing down in Russia after three decades feel a bit more ominous. It's not just the complete withdrawal of a major corporation from a nation that accounted for nearly 10% of its revenue last year, but perhaps a sign of the shakeup to come. Speaking of signs of the times, a popular online tool that informs those looking to buy or rent homes about the flood risk in their area has added an extra feature for wildfires. Riskfactor.com, produced by the nonprofit research group First Street Foundation, is already integrated across a number of real estate apps and websites for their flood risk tool, and the wildfire information will be added soon. But you can look up your house or an area you're considering moving to on their website right now, at least for the lower 48 U.S. states. NPR points out that thousands of homes in the U.S. are destroyed by wildfires every year. But most people buying homes don't have much information to go on about the risk in the particular area that they're looking at. Quoting NPR, The information fills a gap left by the government. Only a handful of states have mapped where communities are most at risk to wildfire. Federal maps from the U.S. Forest Service aren't meant to be used for individual properties. Knowing about wildfire risk may not necessarily dissuade buyers, especially where housing is in short supply. California is one of the few states requiring that wildfire risk be disclosed during a home sale, but the one-page form is easily overlooked in the piles of papers that home buyers have to review. End quote. The new wildfire risk tool from First Street Foundation gives every property a rating on a scale of 1 to 10 and takes the climate crisis into account by giving you a 30-year projection. And when you project it out that far, the results are pretty stark. Quoting again, more than 30 million homes in the lower 48 states, some 20% of houses, have a measurable risk of being hit with a wildfire. Some 1.5 million properties have a greater than 26% chance of burning over the next 30 years. To do the analysis, First Street ran complex computer models simulating how wildfire spreads across different landscapes. Then, to determine how vulnerable each house is, they used satellite imagery and created computer algorithms to assess how much vegetation surrounds a home and what the roof material is based on its color. 
end quote. Now, their modeling may not be perfect, and people should therefore exercise caution and not take the maps and risk ratings as gospel, but they're better than what we currently have otherwise in the U.S. As I said before, only a few states have even mapped out wildfire risk at all, in particular to help determine what building codes new homes need to be built to adhere to, and some of those are considered out of date at this point. The U.S. Forest Service has been working for the last several years to create a more comprehensive resource, but it still doesn't apply to individual residential properties. So for now, riskfactor.com is filling an important need. Although the bigger task, of course, is taking steps to mitigate wildfire spread on individual properties and in general, something that the website also includes suggestions for. So look up your area, and if you live anywhere with any level of risk, it is definitely worth reading through their comprehensive tips and resources as wildfire season continues to ramp up. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has just authorized the first-ever set of underwear that can protect against sexually transmitted infections. So yes, this segment is going to be about sex. This is your heads up to skip ahead a couple of minutes or pop in your headphones if you're listening at work or around young ears or what have you. So, this is a first when it comes to underwear, and your first thought might be that wearing underwear is a little contradictory to engaging in activities that could cause STIs, which, you know, totally depends, but in this case, the underwear is particularly meant to prevent the spread of infection during oral sex. Quoting the New York Times, Infections like herpes, gonorrhea, and syphilis can be transmitted through oral sex, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The risk of transmitting HIV from a vagina through oral sex is considered very low, the CDC said, but HPV, human papillomavirus, is more easily transmitted that way, and mouth and throat infections from some types of HPV may develop into oral or neck cancer, the agency said. How often people transmit infections in this manner is unclear and difficult to study because most people who have oral sex have vaginal or anal sex in the same encounter, said Dr. Kenneth Mayer, the medical research director for Fenway Health, a community health center in Massachusetts that focuses on patients who identify as LGBTQ. The only product previously authorized for protection during oral sex was a dental dam, a thin rectangular sheet of latex or sometimes polyurethane that typically must be held in place with one's hands to form a barrier. End quote. Dental dams, I didn't know until today, were actually invented in the mid-19th century to isolate teeth during certain dental procedures. They started being re-engineered for sexual protection during the AIDS crisis, in particular by an Australian company called Glide Health. Dental dams long ago got FDA authorization as a form of protection, but hardly anyone uses them because, well, as Dr. Jean Marazzo, director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, put it, quote, could there be anything less sexy than a dental dam? End quote. They're also tough to find for sale outside of LGBT-geared shops and clinics. Even the CDC, recognizing how difficult it can be to find dental dams, has an instructional page on their website of how to create one by cutting up a condom. So enter Laurels, a single-use underwear created by Melanie Crystal in 2018. 
Laurels come in two styles, both vanilla-scented and made of latex. They're also gluten, chlorine, and paraben-free and vegan, and cost $25 for a pack of four. Right now, they only come in an opaque black, but based on customer feedback, a sheer version is forthcoming, and they're designed to form a seal on the inside of the thigh. And while just approved for preventing STIs, they can also be used for a range of other personal reasons. As Dr. Marazzo said, quote, they have based basically eroticized protection, which is something that condom companies have struggled with for years, end quote. True, but only for some people. You know, while I have hope the product will continue to expand, right now the design and marketing is geared towards pretty feminine folks, which doesn't reflect all the people who could make use of this product. And even though it's more convenient and maybe a bit more seamless than using a dental dam, it's way more expensive and probably still going to be a tough sell for the majority of people out there. But a number of folks that the New York Times spoke to expressed that it ended up being something they didn't realize they had a need for, and they were surprised how much they liked Liked it. So I think it's a cool and intriguing step forward with more use cases than I originally thought of, but probably not a revolutionary smash hit just yet. Remember the horrifying British Netflix show Black Mirror that depicted different technology-fueled near-future dystopias each episode? The last episode aired in 2019, and there have been a lot of jokes over the last couple of years that the lack of new Black Mirror episodes was because we have entered the Black Mirror universe, and we don't need new episodes because we're already living it. Turns out the delay in new episodes was actually due to creator Charlie Brooker leaving the production company that held the rights to the show, and... Like so many properties across media right now, it was left in limbo as various major companies bought and sold each other. But now, Netflix has confirmed that season 6 is in the works. The show will remain an anthology show with 60-minute-plus cinematic episodes, but no other details have been released just yet. And in other streaming TV news, a new trailer for Apple TV Plus's For All Mankind dropped this morning, so this is your regular reminder that season three drops on June 10th, and if you like space and alternate timeline histories, you absolutely need to add For All Mankind to your watch list. It's one of my favorite shows of the last few years, hands down. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.